Hello, fellow podcast listeners. Are you interested in a strange UFO story? Or maybe a haunting from the great state of Texas? Or maybe true crime tickles your fancy, and we may have a case you've never heard before. If any of these stories entice you, then check out Mystified Podcast. We're a podcast that brings you strange and unusual stories every Friday. You can find us on any platform that you listen to podcasts on, or check us out on Facebook at Mystified Podcast Discussion Group, or even Instagram at mystified underscore pod. So grab a drink and come have a laugh and maybe a scare with us. See you there. Some say this South Texas serial killer may have had as many as 22 victims. Join us as we slice through this story of the butcher of Elmendorf, Joe Ball. My name's Daniel. And I'm Brittany. Let's get chilled and thrilled. I'm picking up what you did there. Slice through. Huh? I did that once or twice before. I don't feel like I have to do it every time now. So I like it. I like it. So... We were uh, taking a break this past week, and it was a very nice break and had some nice well-wishers on Instagram saying, hey, take, you know, have a good break. Enjoy it. You deserve it. And that was really nice to hear. So um, it was a little weird not doing an episode because we've been really consistent with that. But we just needed, um, we just needed a little break to get caught up. we had done, what, 18 weeks in a row? Yeah, I believe so. I believe this is episode 19. So uh, I I got a new rotation at work, and it's a totally different role than what I've been in before. Lots to learn, and I was in training all last week, and I got to tell you, my brain is mush. But it's nice to come back and do the podcast because... It's just something to do outside of work because it's very easy. If any of y'all ever know, when you get really into um, a, any kind of work that just really consumes every thought that you're mm-hmm. even thinking about it outside of work, all you want to do when you get done with work is just kind of veg out just or go to straight to bed, eat something, go to bed and just not think. And so... Yeah, you haven't been able to get your mind off of work. It's but- been hard. It, it's... It's becoming a lot easier now, and it's still there's still a lot to learn in the role, but it's uh, it was a lot of stress on my system. I I guess uh, the change was just a big shock. It was like going seventy miles an hour, and then while you're going seventy miles an hour, you get thrown into reverse, and then you <laughs> speed backwards at seventy miles an hour. So oh, by the way, all of a sudden you're driving on the wrong side of the car, like you go from. Oh, pretty much. Yeah, that's yeah. a good that's a good way to put it. But anyway, that's what's been going on with me. And how about you, Daniel? Well, we had this little thing called Thanksgiving. Oh, yeah. That's all I've been eating is just the leftovers. It's really yes, good. Yes. And I was pretty proud of myself. I baked a pie for the first time in my life by myself. Was I that think, the first time ever? I don't think I've ever baked a pie before. I just followed, I was in the grocery store getting other stuff to make a brine for the turkey. Yeah. And I saw a little can of, of pie filling and I was like, eh, 
why not? And then up there, they had a a chocolate crust, ready-made crust. I was like, well, it was just meant to be. So I made a pumpkin pie just following the, the recipe on the can, but except with a, a ready-made chocolate crust. And I think it came out pretty good. And it was a damn fine pie. Well, thank you very much. It I was very that. delicious. Of course, with pumpkin pie, I put the whipped cream on top. But then you have to make sure you get enough. I put it also around the sides of the wedge of the pie. Oh, yeah. You got to have the right ratios, right, Brittany? Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, we hope all of y'all had a great Thanksgiving. And without further ado, we want to get into some true crimes and slice and dice like we did that turkey. Uh, oh, it doesn't yeah. work as well as when I do it. <laughs> <laughs> It was a nice try, though. I, I like it. Hey, uh, A for effort, right? Doesn't effort begin? Never mind. Yes. Okay. Well, I mentioned the butcher of Elmendorf, mm-hmm. a guy by the name of Joe Ball. Joe Ball? Joseph D. Ball. Okay. Well, Joseph D. Ball, he was born in January of 1896. Okay. So a while ago. Yes. Way back when. He was born to Frank and Elizabeth Ball in a small cotton farming town named Elmendorf, which is about 15 miles southeast of San Antonio. And it was founded by a guy named Henry Elmendorf, but the town itself was built in large part by the Ball family. Cool. And just for reference, it is a little bit south of the world-famous China Grove from that Doobie Brothers song. Whoa, whoa. Whoa, whoa, China Grove. That is the one. Oh, my Hold gosh. Sorry. My puppy dog, I give her these new dog biscuits that I bought. Did she, she nuke you? She loves them, but oh, man, they give her gas so bad. <laughs> it smells so awful. <laughs> well, I'll have her in we're here. We're in a I'm large working. room right now, and you're kind of over in that corner, so hopefully it doesn't waft this way. Yeah, it'll make its way around the room. I guarantee I'll it. just breathe through my mouth. Don't worry. Yes. Well, uh, back in the 1880s, (laughs) Frank moved out there in the 1880s. Frank Ball, Joe's dad, he borrowed some money and created a cotton gin. That's a lot of cotton farming area out there. Mm -hmm, Sure is. Not long after he built the cotton gin, the railroad was built right through town. I don't know if that was just perfect planning or a whole lot of luck on his part, but his business took off. He made him very wealthy. He was investing in real estate. They were the first one to have a stone house in town. Apparently, oh, that was fancy. Yeah, super fancy. They were, they were it. And you've heard of somebody like owning a town. Well, that was them. They they built that town. They made it. Joe grew up in a seemingly happy home, normal childhood. But uh, most people described him as someone who just would keep to himself. And uh, like a lot of kids, or especially boys around that time out in the country, you go grow up around guns. He spent a lot of time hunting and practicing his shooting. According to Joe's nephew, Bucky, I love that name for a kid, Bucky. Old Bucky said, my uncle could shoot a bird off a telephone line with a pistol from the bumper of his Model A Ford. There was a lot of boo 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 that ain't a country thing to say. I don't know what is. So say it again without the... My uncle could shoot a bird off a telephone line with a pistol from the bumper of his Model A Ford. Oh, well... I, I guess that's a pretty steady hand. Yeah, it's pretty specific too. Like 
What, why would you make that particular thing up unless he had actually seen his uncle do that? I don't know. Well, anyway, growing up, Joe worked with his family businesses, was around his dad, got to learn from the, the business practices that were so successful. But in 1914, a little something called the Great War broke out, World War I. It wasn't until 1917 that the United States joined the war and like many young American men at that time, he enlisted in the military, and he was shipped off to the front lines of Europe. Mm. Now, World War I was pretty awful. Yeah, trench <laughs> warfare sucks. Yeah, it was nasty, muddy, mustard gassy, Ugh. just awful, stalemates for months at a time. Yeah. And another thing that's associated along with trench warfare with World War I was something at the time they called shell shock. That's uh, what we know as like PTSD now, right? Well, it could be PTSD. It could have been TBI, the traumatic brain injury, nerve damage, things like that. But they all just sort of lumped it into this thing of shell shock. You know, just the time, people acting kind of funny after they came home? Well, not necessarily. I mean, even before they came home, they would just be sort of freaking out with no explanation. Sometimes they would say, well, they're just being cowardly. They're being yellow. And, and sometimes they would get in trouble for it. They would get yelled at by doctors and officers, and they, they just didn't understand it. And oh, they're, hold on. No, that just made me think, okay, this is, you're talking about World War I, but there is a famous um, story in World War II of General Patton. He either punched or slapped a guy who had this shell shock. Did general, it. a general of the United States military slapped yeah. somebody because they had this, you know, PTSD. Like, like, how fucked up is that? And this was the war before that. Yeah, oh we, my we God. didn't quite get a grasp on it by that point. And, you know, who knows to say what's in somebody's heart, but without an understanding of it, maybe they were just seeing it as cowardice. cowardice. Like, they saw the horrors of it and they said, nope, I don't want that, so I'm going to come up and think of something. But... I mean, we understand better now that this was something real that they were experiencing. They didn't understand it. They didn't, you know, they didn't know what to do about it. But many of them were were sent home or sent away from the front lines. But as many of those people that were experiencing such symptoms, there were so many more that were affected by shell shock, whatever that meant at that time. But they they kept on fighting. They finished their service. But it it, it affected them in some pretty significant ways. And I found a great quote by a war correspondent from the time named Philip Gibbs. And it says, quote, something was wrong. They put on civilian clothes again, looked to their mothers and wives, very much like the young men who had gone to business in the peaceful days before the August of 14. But they had not come back the same men. Something had altered in them. They were subject to sudden moons and queer tempers, Fits a profound depression, alternating with a restless desire for pleasure. Many were easily moved to passion where they lost control of themselves. Many were bitter in their speech, violent in opinion, frightening. Not someone you'd want to meet on the street, or I'm not. But I digress. Just completely different personalities. They may yeah. may have looked the same but they were absolutely not the same person in their personality. You can't be the same person coming back from war. 
Unless you're a sociopath, yeah. but. But I mean, every, I'm sure everybody who goes to war is changed. But yeah. this sort of thing we're talking about is where some people go through war. They're different people, but their personality, you can still recognize. They can still cope. These people could not cope. Yes. And it may have been, like I said, from actual injuries to their brain that might yeah. have caused these changes. Or they may have been emotional injuries, for lack of a better term. Well, Joe was honorably discharged in 1919 from the Army, and he returned back home to Elmendorf. And he, like so many others, was never the same. Over the next three years, he worked with his father, helping him run the family businesses. And during that time, he got married to Clara Christina Wani in 1921. But the marriage was short-lived, and they divorced shortly after and I can only imagine this had something to do with his PTSD or TBI, whatever it was that had affected him and made him different like so many of the others. After seeing how much money was in bootlegging due to the prohibition coming from the 18th Amendment, Joe decided to go into business for himself, making and selling whiskey. He would drive all over the area selling whiskey to people out of a big 50-gallon barrel in the back of his truck. I just picture him with a big old, like, uh, what do they call it? Like a copper ladle, uh, ladle. <laughs> and just like, here you go. And just dipping it in there like gravy. Big old tap on the back and just hold your. Oh yeah. There's probably your, a tap. I was just thinking of a ladle. <laughs> Let me get the stuff down at the bottom. Well, maybe. Um, his business grew so much. Obviously there's a lot of demand during prohibition that he needed some help. And it was around this time he started hiring off and on for some odd jobs. Uh, a black man named Clifton Wheeler. I probably would have been a customer. <laughs> probably. Ain't nobody going to take my alcohol. America. America. So Clifton Wheeler would help him around the house and with his business. The newspaper articles described him as what they called a man Friday. I'd never heard that term before. It's a period term that means a male personal assistant or servant, especially who was particularly competent or loyal. Wheeler was a handyman by trade but he was also made to do the dirty work and hard labor that Ball gave him. He would just give him the orders and drink. <laughs> so wow. Joe Ball would just get drunk and make Clifton do his work, and Joe would take in all the money. But yet he was really loyal to him. Yeah. Maybe the pay was good. Yeah, I mean, he had a solid job during a tough time. Yeah. And according to many, though, Wheeler lived in fear of Ball. So maybe oh. it was fear more than loyalty. Okay. There are people that say that when Ball was really drinking heavily, he would do things like uh, shoot at Wheeler's feet to make him to make him dance. Wow, yeah. that's pretty messed up. Dance the jitterbug. Hang on to that name, Clifton Wheeler. Got it. After prohibition ended, the need for bootlegging was gone, and Joe decided to combine his knowledges of both businesses, the booze, and the businesses that his father had been teaching to run. And he opened a saloon on a small piece of land outside of town. And he named his establishment the Sociable Inn. How quaint. Yes. I guess if you're a sociable person, you go there. Or maybe you go there to drink so that you are more sociable. I don't know. This is the sort of place you'd expect to find people drinking well into the morning hours, dancing, gambling, even the occasional cockfight. At its best, the Sociable Inn could be described as a seedy roadhouse. Nice. The layout included a bar in the front portion of the saloon with two bedrooms in the back. Oh. There were tables and chairs and a player piano in the corner. 
Okay, hold on. We got two bedrooms up in there? Uh, maybe he lives there as well, or maybe some of the people that work there live there. I don't know. Or, or maybe was... he was having a little side hustle with some ladies. Uh, I don't have any specific of... information to that point, but it's certainly possible. And you said what else is in there? A player piano. Is that one of those that like plays by itself? Yeah, it would have with those, the little ro- the, the big scrolls with the, the holes punched <gasps> into it, and with the little pins would go through. Then it would know which note to play. We need one of those. Oh my gosh, it looks like a ghost is playing. And then <laughs> I all I can picture is from the Lego Movie where you know uh, oh, Vitruvius Vitruvius is playing, and he's like, meet me upstairs in five minutes. Five minutes later. <laughs> Well, with attractions like that, you can imagine that his business was doing pretty good. Sure. But he wanted things to be a little bit better. So he figured he's going to add an additional attraction. So what do you think he did? Karaoke? (laughs) Trivia? Axe throwing? Maybe some shuffleboard? No. Man, I would be there for all of that. But something's telling me that he, he added something else, and I don't know what it is. What is it? So he figured... The way to get people in there is he's going to dig a big pit back behind the bar, line it with cement. Cool. Put a 10-foot fence around it. Cool. And put alligators in there. Nope. (laughs) Yeah, five gators. He had four little ones and one big one. And they were were all- Live gators? Yeah, ones he caught himself in the waters around those parts. And he would charge people to come see him, and he would do feedings. Feedings? Yes. So Saturday nights, they were hopping. They had crowds of people. They'd pay extra to go see the gators. He would put on a show by throwing whatever live animal he could find in for, <gasps> for the gators to eat. Wait, whoa, 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 whoa. What do you, what do you mean? Whatever. Stray cats, dogs, <gasps> raccoons, anything. Like somebody a, could like have their dog out there and they just throw it in? Whatever he could, whatever he would find, whatever he could scrounge up is what he would throw in there. And so. Okay. Maybe, what? Hold on. He, he was born in the 1800s. What year is this? This is the early is, 30s. Okay, yeah, you said after Prohibition. I, what? Oh, my God. People, human beings are assholes. Oh, my God, that's horrible. Apparently, there wasn't any law at the time that says you couldn't feed live animals to your gators that you own legally, so... So he owned the gators legally, and there's no law protecting... Stray animals? I guess not. Nothing not that was bad. being enforced anyway. I'm gonna go back in time and, and slap him. Yeah. Throw well, his ass in and there. And it wasn't just it wasn't just him because everybody there were crowds that would come to see these oh, these vicious God. animals chowing down and and oh. yeah. Okay, so, okay. Ugh. No. As you can imagine, someone who would do this might have been known as a creepy and dangerous type of guy, which he was. He was no known shit Sherlock around town as that. And he was also very protective of his gators in the area around them. Once when a neighbor complained about the stench of rotten meat that he had to feed them, Joe pulled out a gun and threateningly exclaimed, quote, that must have been the gators' food and you should mind your own business in the future. Right. Another neighbor was so threatened by Joe that he moved to another city to get away from, quote, that crazy guy. Damn. Still another account is of a man who claims he saw Joe dragging a woman's body (gasps) to the gator pit in May of 1932. When Ball saw him, he threatened to kill him, his wife, and his children if he didn't keep his mouth shut and leave the state. 
And that's exactly what he did. He moved to another state. I, I, I can't even imagine the kind of fear and intimidation just somebody saying that they're going to kill you. But to know that this person who's saying they're going to kill you also has alligators that they willingly throw for entertainment live animals too that's got to add like a whole new level of terror and he must have behaved in a way up to that point to where people would believe him that he would do that you know fucking were crazy so ass one-eyed joe i don't know if he has one eye or not but just cotton-eyed joe is what i'm thinking and throwing people to gators and fuck that did cotton-eyed joe actually have cotton in his eye i don't know you're the one who plays it at your family's wedding. For pretty country. That's right. God. Well, another attraction for his saloon, the Sociable Inn. You just kept going when I made that reference. What? I went. Oh, yes. Back to that. Have you told all our listeners about that yet in a previous episode? We did, yes. Okay, I thought so. All right. Well, if you haven't heard that yet, you're just going to have to go back and listen to episodes until you hear that bit. Well, Joe liked to hire young, good-looking waitresses from out of town. Me too. I'm just kidding. Like, Go ahead. Okay. No, I want the old, ugly ones. Like, what? (laughs) Of course. It's like, how many waitresses have you hired, Brittany? (laughs) I was thrown. So what he would do is he would go to the bus station and watch people getting off the bus at town, and he would see... Who looked like they were, they knew where they were going. Mm-hmm. And then he would look for the ones that would get off and look around, like, okay, what now? You could tell these are the ones from out of town, maybe looking for work, maybe, uh, you know, running away or down on their luck or whatever it was if they were coming into town in, for the first time. He knew they weren't from around there. He would offer them a job at the end to draw in more customers. Mm-hmm. And this provided a seemingly endless supply of young barmaids, but none of them seemed to stick around for very long. It sounds very predatory, like uh, looking like, who thinks like that? Who thinks, hey, let's look for the lost people and get them to come to my seedy bar where they get a job, where there's two bedrooms and the, mm-mm. I don't like where this is going, but proceed. Well, apparently they didn't either because they wouldn't work there for very long. about starting a podcast but not exactly sure how to do it? Buzzsprout was the answer for us and they can be for you too. They have tons of guides to help you get set up for success and their customer service is fantastic. I always seem to have a million questions and each time I've worked with their customer service, they've responded quickly with the detailed information I need. Buzzsprout helps you get listed in all the major podcast platforms like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more and will upload your episodes to those platforms within minutes of finishing your recording. It couldn't be easier. You'll get a great-looking podcast website, audio players that you can drop into other websites, detailed analytics to see how people are listening, tools to promote your episodes, and more. Buzzsprout is offering our listeners a $20 Amazon gift card when you sign up for a paid plan. Click on the link in our show notes to let Buzzsprout know that we sent you and to show support for our show. Paid plans start as low as $12 a month. And there's no contracts, plus you can cancel anytime. Get the right team in your corner with Buzzsprout, who has already helped over 100,000 podcasters make their dreams a reality. Buzzsprout, the best way to host, promote, and track your podcast. 
But mm. Joe would always explain that they would, you know, they fell on hard times. They couldn't go home. They had to move away, start over, that sort of mm. a thing. They were just drifting through town, and they stopped to work there for a while to make a buck on their way Sure through. they drifting. were. Just a drifter. You a drifter, Biff. I can't I, just pull up something and run off with you. Well, one of these waitresses was a 25-year-old native of, of a nearby town called Seguin. Yeah, I know mm-hmm. that. Her name was Minnie Mae Goddard, but everyone just called her Big Minnie. <laughs> <laughs> you think Mickey liked her too? I don't know. I'm just thinking Big Minnie <laughs> spending cheese. <laughs> we be Big Minnie. <laughs> well, she quickly caught the eye of Joe, and they started dating, and actually they were running the bar together for a few years. This was much to the dismay of Joe's regular customers who saw Minnie as, quote, bossy, displeasing, and loathsome. How'd you mm. like if people called you loathsome? <laughs> She's like, eh, eh, eh. Well, Ball didn't care, and Minnie didn't care. They ran the ball at the bar together for several years. She had no fear, and she didn't have any problem dealing with the drunks. Another beautiful young waitress that Joe was involved with was Dolores Buddy Goodwin. Not a common name for a woman, but her nickname was Buddy. She was 15 years younger than Joe, and Buddy came into the picture after Minnie and Joe had been running the bar for about three years. Now, from the get-go, Buddy and Joe started an affair, even though he was still with Minnie, who was currently pregnant with Joe's baby. Well, that's a little scandalous right there. Just a little bit. There are reports from around this time of Minnie telling Joe that she was pregnant, and she had even visited a maternity home during that time. As you can imagine, Big Minnie did not care for Buddy at all. Buddy fell hard for Joe, even despite receiving a scar from her eye all the way down to her neck after Joe threw a bottle at her. Uh, wait. Yeah. D- d- record scratch. Yes. And on top of this very fucked up uh, love triangle here, he threw a bottle at her face? She would later say that it was an accident. The bottle was meant for somebody else, and he accidentally hit her, but... I mean, and, still, he was chucking bottles across the room hard enough that it hit her and broke and then cut her, like, from eye to neck. I mean, that's a long cut. The, I mean, just the, the logistics of it are hard to fathom. From where is it? From her eye to her neck. So she's got, like, a Dr. Evil lazy eye thing, that scar Something down the middle like of her that, face. Yeah. Right. Yes. He's like, what type of bottle is this? How does it, I mean, did it hit something first and then cut her after it broke? That seems more likely than actually hitting her because I don't know. I don't know. Well, of course, Minnie found out about the affair. Yes, women always do, guys. Yep, and she wrote a letter to Joe basically saying that he and Buddy were not going to be a thing, and she knew certain, quote, things, some of which would likely get her killed, but she didn't care. Because she's Big Minnie, she don't care. Big Minnie's up here spending G's, she don't give a fuck. In the summer of 1937, Minnie suddenly was nowhere to be found. Just like so many of the other waitresses. Oh no, Big Minnie, where'd you go? Well, Joe told everybody that um, when they asked where Big Minnie was, he told them that she had had an affair with a black man and ran off to Corpus Christi to have his baby. Which, in the 30s, I'm sure, was very scandalous. Yes. 
he used a much worse way to say that. It was pretty awful. I'm, I'm sure it's gonna... the South and he's a white guy. Yeah. Well, Idiot. it was disgusting the way he put it. Yeah. Well, as it turns out, Minnie was in Corpus Christi at that time, but not the way that Joe explained it. Oh. Now, not long after Minnie's disappearance, just literally a few months, Joe and Buddy got married. It was September of 1937. Yikes. Yes. Another beautiful young waitress also started working at the Sociable Inn around that time. Her name was Hazel Brown, but she was known as Shatsy. That's kind of a lot of people cool. have nicknames here. I want a nickname. We'll, we'll find a nickname for you. You want to be called Shotzi? I kind of like Shotzi. That's a badass name. It's like if you're playing Yahtzee, but... <laughs> Shotzi. No. Oh, that's a drinking game. Every time you win at Yahtzee, <laughs> Shotzi. Shotzi. There you go. I d- trademark. I just made that up. She was 22 years old, and she was a hostess from Knobs, Texas, in Lee County, which is east of Austin. Okay, so all South Texas. Yeah. By the time she was 21, she had already been married to her first cousin, a shotgun wedding, divorced, had a six-year-old son who was being raised by her family. How old is she? She's 21. She has a six-year-old at 21? Yes. Good Lord. Shotgun wedding, first cousin. Ding, ding, ding. Yes. So she was desperate to start over. Wait a minute, isn't your family from South Texas? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I love you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> she was desperate to start over because of all that that had happened. And who knows the circumstances under which her cousin got her pregnant in the first place. Ugh. But she moved to Elmendorf and started working at the Sociable Inn. She was very popular with the customers. Not only was she beautiful, but she was also very outgoing and confident. Soon after Joe and Buddy got married, Joe started an affair with Shotzi. God damn it. Yeah. By many reports, Buddy and Shotzi were actually good friends. Well, uh, did they know what was going on? Uh, I take them on Tuesdays, you take them on Thursdays kind of deal? What What the I, hell? I don't know. It's, it's interesting, that dynamic there. I didn't... These girls would not be best friends if they didn't... Like, One, if, if they didn't know. You know like... There's okay. There, there's no way that they would have been best friends and not known. That's Truly, what I'm saying. I mean, best friends in that environment. How could they have not known? Yeah. Well, in the January of in the January, I like that in the January in the January of 1938. I love it. That was the year my my uh, dad was born in January of 38. Don't tell me that's when another baby's born or something. No, this is when Buddy... Okay, <laughs> I was about to say, wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> that was up in Arkansas, so... Oh, that's right, that's right. <laughs> Buddy was in a near-fatal car accident, which resulted in her left arm having to be amputated. Oh, gosh. Right around the elbow. This fueled rumors that one of Joe's gators had bitten it off. Oh, dang, I could see how people would think that for sure. We'll show you all a picture of Joe with Buddy later. With her, you can see where her arm was amputated. Okay. By April of 1938, Buddy, too, had gone missing. Fuck. Now it was just Joe and Shotzi, but Shotzi had other ideas. While she was working at the inn, Shotzi met a man who offered her stability and a new life away from Joe and the sociable inn. And the gators. Yes. Soon after that, though, she also disappeared. Motherfucker. So let's just pause and recap here. Joe was with Big Minnie for three years running the bar, 
Mm-hmm. He says she's pregnant. She knows, quote unquote, stuff that might get her killed. Um, and but she, you're not going to have this thing with Buddy because and then you're with she's me. missing. You're, yes, I know stuff. So you just better stop that, all that with Buddy. And then she goes missing after that. And we got the BS story about her running up to Corpus Christi having having a baby. Buddy comes into the picture just before Minnie goes away. She's hooking up with Joe, just much to Minnie's dismay. I'm really not trying to rhyme here, I promise. A few months after Minnie is gone, Buddy and Joe get married. Now Shotzi's working at the bar and having an affair with Joe while he's recently married to Buddy. Buddy goes missing, and then Shotzi goes missing. Y'all caught up now? I'm just shaking my head side to side, just no. SMH. So in the summer of 1938, one year after her disappearance, Minnie's family called the police and reported her missing. Wait. A year. A whole year. Did they forget or something? Well, I'm thinking like, well, we hadn't had a, a letter in a few months from... From uh, from old Manny, let's let's send her another letter and see if she's doing okay. Maybe that's the way it was back then. I, I mean, guess. she might have just taken off and maybe written, "Like, here's my new address in Elmendorf," and you know, yeah, maybe. I mean, I just had year were a, Jesus were a thing, but I don't know. Maybe they were just writing letters and realized we haven't got a letter and wrote in a few times and and wrote in. I should have said wrote in. We've been wrote in her for a while now. That timeline is highly suspect. Yes. That's a long time to wait. Well, they finally call the cops and say, hey, we hadn't heard from her in a year. So the police went and interviewed Joe. He told them the same story that she had run off to Corpus to have another man's baby. Around that time, another family of a former waitress, Julia Turner, also contacted the police to report her missing. Again, they questioned Joe he told them she had fallen on hard times. She was having problems with her roommate. She needed to go away. And I loaned her 500 bucks, and that was the last I saw her. Now, this is the 1930s. My eyes are perked up. $500 is a lot of money in now. Yeah, adjusted at least for to inflation, me, that's poor. around $9,000. <laughs> she fell on hard times. I loaned her $500, and she left. Yes. Right. One interesting fact with both Julia and Minnie, when the police searched their residences, neither had taken any of their clothes or possessions with them. (laughs) Yeah, because that's very typical, right? You leave and you just don't take anything. When you're out of money and you just need to get away, you're going to leave all your stuff that's probably worth some money. And you just go. Uh, How about clothes? If if you're pregnant and need to move somewhere to have your baby, you're just going to leave all your stuff there? I don't know. (sighs) Well, it was around this time that two other employees also were reported missing, along with a boy who was a regular at the inn. This added all of it built up around the suspicion related to Joe. The law enforcement didn't really have any sort of case against him with the evidence they had, just a suspicion. But that was about to change. On September 23rd... Hey! That's my birthday, y'all. A man approached John Gray, who was a Bear County deputy sheriff, while he was out dove hunting in Elmendorf. The man reported that there was, quote, a foul-smelling barrel that was covered in flies that was left behind Joe's sister's barn. Oh. When describing the odor, the man said, 
It smelled like something's dead inside. Gross. This report, combined with the many women who had worked at the sociable inn that had gone missing, sparked a little bit of interest with Gray. I mean, stinky barrel could be anything, but you add that to everything else that's gone on. All like, these reports. Oh, yeah. And everything, every everyone gone missing has got one thing in common. Joe Ball. Joe Ball. Exactly. So the next day, September 24th, Gray and another deputy named John Clevenhagen. Clevenhagen. It might be Clevenhagen, but I like to say Clevenhagen. I like it too. They went together to investigate the barrel complaint. Now, Clevenhagen knew Ball, and the two of them often hunted together, so maybe that's why Deputy Gray asked him to come with him. Okay. So the two deputies searched the area. They couldn't find the barrel. So they went to ask Joe Ball about it. He denied knowing anything about it. So they of said, course. come on out there with us. We'll just go, you know, just come on for a little bit. Come with us. We'll go check it out. So he went with them. And when they got there, Joe's sister corroborated his story of the man who initially reported the barrel. So This is all on the same day? On the 23rd? No, this no, the, the investigation when they're looking into it is all on the 24th. Oh, okay, so they, they called it in on the 23rd, and then they went out there on the, the next day. Right. The guy okay. reported it to him the 23rd. On the 24th, they went to go check it out. Gotcha. So the sister is like, yeah, there was a barrel out there. It stunk to high heaven. And they're like, okay, thanks. But it's not there anymore. So Where'd it go? Yeah. The deputies asked Ball to come with them to San Antonio at that point for some more questioning. Because there's, there's enough smoke here that they figure they need to check for fire. Sure. So Ball agreed, but he said, hey, first let me go back to the bar and close the place down and have a beer. They're like, fine. <laughs> and have a beer. Name my burr. All, you know, these are guys that know each other, right? They've sure. known each other growing up. So the deputies agreed. Everyone went back to the sociable inn. Joe got a beer and went behind the, the counter to close up the register and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, once he opened up the register, he pulled out a forty-five caliber pistol. Uh-oh. Waved at the deputies. The deputies shouted, don't, before they could draw their own guns. Ball pointed the gun at his own chest and pulled the trigger, killing himself instantly. Well, damn, that's a sudden end. I didn't expect that. I thought he was going to shoot him. (laughs) He didn't exactly go down in a blaze of glory. He just went boop. Oh, damn. Took the easy way out, so to speak. Howard. I wonder what it looked like when he was waving the gun at him like, Look what I got. Look at what I got. Oh, yeah. creepy. So after all that happened, as you might imagine, a bunch more law enforcement officers descended on the scene and they began to tear the place apart looking for evidence. All they found, though, was rotting meat and a bloody axe with matted hair on it. And Uh-oh. they determined it was likely from the animals he had fed to the alligators. Mm-hmm. So now with Joe Ball dead and so many of his waitresses nowhere to be found, the one person who might be able to tell them what happened was the handyman, Clifton Wheeler. Oh, yeah, you said remember him. Mm -hmm. Remember, people had said Ball had a tendency to make Wheeler do much of his dirty work for the bootlegging business. Right. He treated him poorly. Clifton lived in fear of Joe. Well, at first, Wheeler was adamant he had nothing to do with the missing woman. But after grueling hours in the interview room, he began to spill the beans, so to speak. I want to know what the beans are. He stressed that Minnie was not in the barrel they had been investigating. 
it was Hazel Brown. Oh, fuck. Shotzi. At first, he claimed he had helped Joe dump the barrel over a bridge into a river, but when they searched that area, nothing was found. It was in early October when Wheeler admitted to having watched Ball kill Shotzi with an axe. With an axe? With an axe. Jeez. To the investigator's surprise, though, Hazel Brown's body had not been fed to the alligators. Clifton told them he had dug her grave himself, and he was happy to show them where. He led authorities to a spot three miles from town by the San Antonio River and started digging. Blood and an unbearable odor bubbled out of the sand, and Wheeler started retrieving body parts from the ground. Yeah. Okay, so this was October, and that had all happened in September. And it's is it a shallow grave, I'm assuming? Well, it's enough that he could dig himself, so yeah. So this is South Texas. September's still hot. Yes, it fucking is. And October can be pretty warm, too. So, yeah, it's not as though it was just preserved. It was rotting. So, wait, 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 wait. They, I'm confused. So, she, they, he said that her body was in the barrel, which means it would have been there on the 23rd of September. Yes. So, where does the grave come in? They took in Wheeler sometime between then. It he, they had questioned him pretty soon afterward, but first he told him the wrong. First he said, no, I wasn't involved. Then he said, okay, I, I saw him do it. He made me do this and that. We dumped it over. They searched there, didn't find anything. And then he'd come back to him. By this point, it's October. And he's like, okay, fine. I'll show you where. So he's digging up these this shallow grave. And so they got her from the barrel and put her into a grave? Yeah. And that... That barrel was already stinking to high heaven with flies. Oh, yeah. my God. I mean, it's, it's you know, fall had just started, but really at that point, it's still summer in Texas. Dirty work doesn't fucking cover it. Yeah. Oh. So Wheeler's digging up the shallow grave. He produces arms, legs, and a torso. God. When they asked him what about the head, he walked a short distance away to a place where they made a campfire where the police found a charred skull, jawbone, and teeth. A rusty butcher's saw was also found at the scene. Now, there are pictures of some of these and uh, reports of onlookers. Like people, they didn't set up perimeter or anything and police tape that I know of. So people are just standing around and the, the onlookers were like running away and puking from, from the smell and the scene of all this. I, I can't even... Imagine, oh my gosh, be thankful that we have Netflix, y'all. <laughs> oh. So Wheeler starts to tell him the story about what happened. That night, he told him that Joe Ball had told him to load up the car with tools and beer. They picked up the barrel from his sister's place and drove it out by the river. Joe ordered Clifton to help him dismember the body, but he refused. He was already physically ill by that point. He was sick. He was throwing up. But after a while, seeing Joe Ball struggle to manage the body as he was dissecting it, Wheeler eventually helped by holding the limbs down while Joe sawed away at the body. Okay, so she was dead intact in the barrel. They got her decomposing nasty body, sorry, 
out of the barrel and then they start hacking away at it to cut it up? Yes. Jeez. When they would both get sick, they would take a break to drink more beer, then resume the gruesome work. I don't know about you, but when I drink a lot of beer, I get sick anyway. So I don't know how drinking beer is going to, I don't know. They're probably trying to get drunk off their ass so they can proceed with this god-awful horror, what is it, Um, heinous crime. Yeah. (laughs) Well, after burying the rest of Hazel's body, they made a fire and burned clothes on top of her head in an attempt to disguise the face. Oh my God. They drank away the rest of the night and returned home at dawn. When he was asked why Ball had killed Hazel, Wheeler shrugged and said, maybe she knew too much about Miss Minnie. Oh, damn. What about Big Minnie? She moved to Corpus Christi, right? Well, according to Wheeler, Joe wanted to marry Buddy, but he needed Minnie out of the way. Remember, Minnie was pregnant with his baby. I'm just shaking my head like this. The only way in his mind to be rid of her and the child was to kill them. Clifton had packed lunch and drinks into a car and accompanied the two of them to Corpus for a day at the beach. By the end of the day, Minnie was drunk and obliged when Joe told her to remove her swimsuit after he had sent Clifton away for a while. Joe distracted Minnie by pointing off into the distance. When she turned her head to look, he shot her in the temple. When Wheeler returned, he was ordered to bury the body. Fuck him. I mean, God. I mean, where do you get to that point? Maybe maybe it can all be explained by war. Oh, my God. I. But you get to the point to where, well, the solution is I'll just, I'll just kill. Look him. over there. Oh, okay. So he calls Wheeler back over and what? And says, bury the body. Now, Wheeler led investigators to the general location on the beach, but he had a hard time actually pinpointing the exact spot. Eventually, he found it, and they made him dig by himself for two whole days before they finally got, uh, got him out of there and brought in machinery, an excavator. <sighs> it wasn't until the hole was 20 feet deep and 30 feet wide they finally found the body. This exhumation turned out to be a big event. Crowds of people showed up to watch. One person even decided to capitalize on the situation by offering refreshments to onlookers. Like it's a beverage cap- card or something. Capitalism. Yeah. One photo shows a group of women and children standing around the rim of the sandy grave as authorities attempted to collect what was left of her half-decomposed remains. Children? Yep. I will show you the pictures. Jesus, what the hell is wrong with people? Come on, Sally, let's go see what they're doing. Oh, look, look, honey, that's a thigh. Oh, God. Children, look carefully. This is what happens when you get into poor living. You got to live right or you're going to end up in a... uh, This is what happens when you drink alcohol. Yeah, exactly. You got to stay on the straight and narrow or else you're going to end up dead underneath the beach. So... They put Minnie's body into burlap sacks for transport to the San Patricio County Morgue, where it lay unclaimed until it was finally buried in the county by a potter's field grave. Oh, poor Minnie. I had to look it up what that meant. A potter's field or a pauper's grave, also known as a common grave. Yeah, like people who can't 
afford it and or they, people like, who are unclaimed if they don't have any family don't you know nobody's there to yeah they basically of. they don't really have like a headstone or anything like that they usually like have like a little pine box Marker if that yeah well here's sort of a well, the more shocking part based on all of that is that after more searching buddy had actually been found alive and well oh well that's good yeah out in san diego living with her sister According to later statements, Buddy had fled from Ball in Elmendorf, likely because of what she knew. Good for her. Yeah. Because she had fled, she didn't tell anyone, including Shotzi, that she was leaving. Mm. To everyone else, she just vanished and left many to speculate. Probably that was the only way, like, you could get away from him, is either you're going to die or you have to break away in the dead of night, leave everything behind. Yeah. Well, deputies Gray and Clevenhagen wrote. Uh, they brought Buddy back with them to San Antonio for additional questioning. Along the way, they stopped in Phoenix, Arizona, and actually found one of the other missing women from the social inn there. Okay, yay! Clifton Wheeler was convicted for his parts in the killings and served two years. He opened his own bar in Elmendorf, but that didn't last long. He soon left and was never heard from again. What happened to Clifton Wheeler? If anybody knows what happened. Yeah. Because that's just like, yes, I understand he did do some of those things, but like at the same time, he cooperated and I'm sure black man in the South in the 30s and couldn't get any kind of justice. I'm actually surprised it was, they only gave him two years, but like still you've got someone like, you've just seen this person do this awful stuff and you're scared to death of him. I'm actually kind of glad that he was able to disappear. Maybe well, maybe mm-hmm. he was able to just get out of town, move far away, and start over, start fresh, and make a brand new yeah, life. Yeah, well, I hope so. I hope Mr. Wheeler lived a long, happy life after that. Yeah. The alligators were rescued from the pit at the Sociable Inn and went on to live the remainder of their lives at the San Antonio Zoo. Oh, yay! <laughs> yay, it's a neat zoo. About 20 years later... Buddy gave an interview with a reporter, and she recounted what Wheeler had told her about both Minnie and Shotzi. This is a quote. I was living with Joe then, and I guess you might say he killed her, meaning Minnie, for me. Just before we got married in September of 37, he told me he'd taken her to Corpus Christi and killed her. He said she wouldn't make us no more trouble. He was drinking, and I just couldn't believe him. So I went ahead and married him. What? Minnie wasn't around anymore. I didn't see it, but Cliff told me about it. He said Shotzi kept throwing it up to Joe about Minnie. She said he'd killed Minnie and now I was gone, so he must have killed me. After a while, Joe hit her with his pistol and I reckon that killed her. Then they cut her up and buried her and tried to burn her head. I sure liked Shotzi. The fuck is wrong with this buddy Dolores lady? Psycho. Yeah, he told me he killed her, but he was drinking, so I, I didn't. I just him, married so him anyway, I'll, you know. I'll, I'll marry him, even though. And then describing her, what was reportedly her one of her best friends, getting cut up and brutally murdered, and her heads burning, and then just kind of a pause. And I really like that Shotzi. What the you know, psycho? Yeah, I liked her. That that's, that's what we call a psychopath, a sociopath. 
You know what? At least she had sense enough to get out of there. Yeah, yeah but I mean, damn. Unlike some others, apparently some others did, but Ugh. according to Wheeler, Shotzi, like everyone else, didn't know that Buddy had fled to San Diego. So she accused Ball of killing her just like he killed Big Minnie. I can imagine with Shotzi wanting to leave with that other guy she'd met, Joe not wanting to give her up. She was doing everything she could just to dis- distance herself from him. I, I've never been in this position, but I'm going to go ahead and say, don't challenge a murderer. Don't, like, fling that in their face because uh, what? Yeah. why would you do that? That's poking a hibernating bear there. Like, it seems you know? like there were so many ill-advised attempts to to be manipulative and, and get her eyes out of him to, like you said, poke the bear or whatever. Oh, yeah? Well, I know you killed them, and you must have killed her, too. So what are you going to do? Are you going to kill me? Well, yeah. Uh, I, mm-mm. Now, children, what did we learn? <laughs> why do you think, first, why do you think Wheeler cooperated so willingly with authorities if he was involved? Black? Oh, why did he cooperate? Yeah, I mean, he didn't at first. Black man living in the South in the 30s, racial inequality, and I think he was trying to play it as safe as he could. I'm sure Joe, to some extent, protected him, but still, like, I'll protect you as long as you do all this dirty work for me. And I think, I mean, I... (laughs) I would be shocked if you, if we found out, like if we were able to see the whole story and it was just Joe and Wheeler who knew this. I'm guessing Joe had buddies to make sure and keep things in line and knew other stuff too. Maybe. So maybe even after Joe died, maybe he was still terrified. Could and be. like even if he comes clean, what, what's law enforcement going to do to him? You know what I'm saying? He's already gotten his hands dirty because of this guy. From what I read, there was also, it seemed that Wheeler had this idea that he was innocent. Even though he was involved, he was just doing what Joe Ball had told him to do. It was Joe that did the killing. He was just following orders. He was just an employee, basically. So I think in his mind for a while, up until he was you know, convicted and served time, that he was really innocent despite his involvement. So that Disassociation. M- that might have been part of it. Yeah. So that only leaves two people that we know for sure that Joe killed. But the rumors and the stories are as many as 14, even up to 22 people. Yeah, because there were other people who just went missing. And like you said, those detectives who like found many or not many, um, Buddy later on, they you said they were coming back and they found someone else in another state, right? Right. So some of them probably did move on with their lives and just, you know, worked there for a little bit, passing through town. Sure, that might have been the case for some of them, but what the hell happened to the other ones? Yeah. People found, who just like up and left their clothes behind. Yeah. Um, they no. found letters in Joe's house indicating there might have been more women that either he had been involved with or there had been problems with. I don't doubt it. It had gone away. I can't see someone like Joe going, here, lady, let me give you $500 and you get out of town, but I know you'll pay me back. Sure, yeah. Fuck that. There's a story 
from early on. We remember of the guy that saw Joe dragging the body. Right. Looked like a woman's body. Right. So that adds to it as well. There was all those barrels that he always kept around with smelly, rotten stuff in it. People just thought, okay, well, that's the meat for the gators. Well, what's what's what, the meat what, for the gators? What better place to to keep a dead body than a rotten, stinking, you know, raccoon meat barrel? Ugh. Uh, but it's just the rec- It's just the food for gators. So you just mind your business, right? God, night almighty. Now, surprisingly, the police did not find any human remains in the gator pit. I don't think that really proves anything. It could have been a while since they fed them. They might have digested. Well, yeah, I mean, okay, picture a gator, okay? Or even picture a crocodile, but whatever, something like that. They have little hands. They can't pick apart stuff. So what do they have to do? Like a shark, they bite. And they do that death roll. They, they eat the tear whole damn off. thing. Well, no, they bite and they get a chunk of it and they swallow it. Tendons, ligaments, bones, muscle, everything. And then they go down and they spin again and they eat it. Well, it's not like those bones just hit their stomach and don't go any further. They've got powerful acid in their stomach to break down even bones. So I don't think anything's going to be coming out of them. That could be traceable as, you know, especially in the 30s with forensics, like. Well, think about it like this way, too. Even if he did never feed any human remains to the gators, what's to say he hadn't been chopping people up and putting them in barrels and then hauling off the barrels in the middle of the night to different places? Maybe there's a bunch of shallow graves around there that nobody ever found. Probably. Maybe, maybe other barrels did make it into the river, like he said originally. I'm just, oh, you said by the San Antonio River, I'm just picturing going down the, the, the river, river walk, walk and just seeing a floating barrel go by <laughs> and go, fuck. Going over a waterfall somewhere. Ugh. Now, I don't know. I I can go either way with the gator thing, but there's something, for someone who gets such pleasure with throwing live, innocent animals, you know, not even having the courtesy to like put them out of their misery first and not have them stressed, like... You know, I understand predators have to eat big, big animals have to eat other animals. But like, you know, people, the way you're describing it, people wanted to see the bloodbath, wanted to, I don't even want to think about it, but like hear things and that's just fucking awful. And Well, how different is that from watching a a cheetah chase down a, a gazelle on Animal Planet? Um, first of all... That's nature. That's not a human controlling the situation. That's what happens in the wild. People are watching it, filming it and watching it. My point (laughs) is that if someone's that evil to just want to do that, and then we already know from Wheeler's testimony that he helped chop up her dead mutilated body and do all these other things... It's not a stretch to say that he probably threw him in. So I'm I would lean that way. Yes, it stands to reason that it if Big Minnie even being pregnant wasn't the last woman that he killed, what's to say it was the first? Yeah, exactly. I think Shotzi was probably the last one because that's when he right, was people... caught and killing himself, but people have been disappearing from the sociable inn for, for a long time. Like you said, we know that a couple of them were accounted for after the fact. But because we know he 
definitely was capable and willing to do these things. We know he had different ways he could have disposed of the bodies, whether it was pitching him in the barrels, feeding him to the gators, burying him somewhere. It's a convenient way to get rid of evidence, isn't it, by yes. feeding it to gators. So because of the possibility that it could have been more, this legend grew. And of course, it's a gruesome story, just the two people we know of that died. But the legend grew. People picked up on the story. It was in what they call the the pulp magazines, the sort of the cheap, the trashy stories, that sort of stuff that were popular after that in the 40s and 50s. But around the town, the story, you can imagine it grew. In the legend grew. People like to exaggerate to where now the story, and for some people are concerned, he killed 22 people. So that's how it goes from going from two people all the way up to this huge number. And who knows, it might have been, and that's why this the legend continues to to go on because maybe, who knows, maybe he did kill that many people and we're not, we'll never know. And that, my dear, is the story of the Butcher of Elmendorf, Joe Ball. Wow. That was good. I really enjoyed that. Another Texas story, but damn it, we're a big state <laughs> and we got a lot of psychopaths, so. And it's... I really don't set out to find stories that have anything to do with Texas. They just sort of, they come to me. They come to you? Yes. Okay, well. Even when I tried to do one about Michigan, it ended up in Texas. (laughs) Well, I loved it, and we want to hear what y'all have to say about it. Do you think that Joe fed him to the Gators? Do you think there's more than just the two victims? We want to know, and uh, you can find us on our website, chilledandthrilled.com. You can like, subscribe, rate, review. Everything is there. We're most active on our Instagram page at Podcast. Let us know on Instagram if you've ever been eaten by an alligator before. Yeah. Tell us what it was like. What was that experience like And on that note, we'll say goodbye for this week. (laughs) Thanks again for listening. Hope you have a great week. Bye. (laughs) 